0: Hello and welcome to International Voices with Udo Fluck. I am the Director of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula and I'm hosting these internationally focused and themed radio recordings once a month produced by 103.3 The Trail in Missoula. If you have not had a chance to listen to the February broadcast with my special guest, tom benson executive director of arts missoula or my march radio show with special guest mayor john engen please visit the arts missoula website at www.artsmissoula.org those podcasts also have lots of background information on the office of global and cultural affairs which i have the pleasure of overseeing our mission and the services the office provides, including sister city management, intercultural training, and outreach programs into K through 12, and community programming. My third broadcast should have focused on the international activities and programming that were originally scheduled for the end of March, but with UM's World Fest canceled, the worldview film series scratched, the international community speaker series postponed, and all because of the coronavirus, I thought it would be appropriate to dedicate this broadcast to COVID-19 with an international perspective. It is an honor to have Dr. Sarge Patel on this podcast today, a truly international voice, I'm super excited about my special guest, who connects particularly well to our current situation. Dr. Patel is a British and American educated former UM associate research professor and neuroscience researcher with Indian Roots. He has worked for the Missoula-based Montana Neuroscience Institute and in association with them. He's also the president and co founder of Fire Diagnostics, a research laboratory based in the Garden City that is currently working on developing novel diagnostic tests for human health and agriculture. He moved to the United States after completing an undergraduate degree in pharmacology at the University of Sunderland in the UK and received a master's degree in neuroscience from the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College, London, in 1994, followed by a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences from the University of Montana in Missoula in 2000. Following a postdoctoral position at John Hopkins Hospital in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery, Patel returned to the University of Montana as a research associate in the NIH COBRE Center for Structural and Functional Neuroscience. He's the recipient of two GE NFL Head Health Challenge Awards and a Montana Research and Economic Development Initiative Award for his work on traumatic brain injury. He also has received funding from the NIH to develop biomarkers for post-traumatic epilepsy. I want the listeners to know that Dr. Patel and I are practicing social distance at its best today. We are actually in two different locations, me at home in the dining room and Dr. Patel in his fire diagnostics research lab. We're seeing each other via Zoom, a video conferencing program, and the entire conversation is recorded this way. Thanks to Heidi Sterrett from the trail for all her support with the logistics and to Michael Smith at the trail, who is kind enough to edit and polish the raw interview and release the final podcast version this thursday international voices is always published the first thursday of the month a shout out to the awesome team at the trail welcome dr patel it is a privilege to have you as my guest today
1: hi udo it's a pleasure to be here thank you for the invitation of course i think
0: everybody is familiar with the virus that has caused the current pandemic But if you're not, here's a brief summary of how it started and how we got to where we currently are. Please allow me to provide a brief, very brief history of the coronavirus or the family of the coronaviruses. Historically, coronavirus is an organism that has been associated with a common cold, asthma, and bronchitis. Its name is derived from the characteristic petal shape that give the virus a crown or a corona appearance. Coronavirus disease was first described in 1931 with the first coronavirus isolated from humans in 1965. Not much happened for almost 40 years until the outbreak of the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, also known as SARS, In late 2002 and a decade later the Middle East respiratory syndrome also known as MERS which was first reported in Saudi Arabia in 2012. The current epidemic of COVID-19 began circulating in Wuhan China in December of last year. COVID-19 is similar to coronaviruses in bats And it is likely that this typically non-human virus has jumped species into humans. Like the flu, person-to-person transmission occurs through micro droplets that are created when an infected person sneezes or coughs. The virus can also be transmitted by an infected person touching a surface or an object and the virus is unknowingly picked up by a healthy person. One key aspect of slowing the spread of COVID-19 seems to be the ability to test people widely. What are the current bottlenecks in testing? What is the importance of testing a larger number of the population is my first question to Dr. Patel.
1: Well Udo, um, there's, um, those are two very important questions, um, if, if I answer the second one first, I think sure. the importance of testing a larger population uh, seems like common sense, because uh, currently we're still trying to get a handle on exactly how far reaching uh, this pandemic is. Um, in a country as large as the United States, uh, where you have a large population, um, the transmission It's been shown that the transmission of the virus uh, doesn't necessarily lead to the display of symptomology that someone has been infected. To get a better handle on exactly how many people are actually carrying this virus, um, and then to give us a better idea of the potential scale of this epidemic, um, it's very, very important to have an accurate representation of. that number, and the only way we can do that currently is to screen the population. Um, Currently, unfortunately, due to the logistical nature of being physically able to do that, uh, both in terms of having the resources, uh, in terms of the actual test kits, um, and then also being able to reach out to the population in a way that one, doesn't allow the transmission of the disease to be further amplified um, in, in, in a way to be able to get testing completed that doesn't increase the risk to the folks being tested of catching the disease has been a, a logistical nightmare, to say the least. And um, you know, uh, uh, state officials and, and uh, federal officials have been trying their best to see how to um, uh, tackle this problem. Um, in terms of you know, bottlenecks, um, again, it's, uh, it's a supply and demand kind of situation, not only in terms of the testing, but in terms of having uh, the necessary equipment, personal protective equipment that they, you know, we all know, hear of these shortages. And so these things are, uh, uh, are really highlighting just how dr- dramatic of a pandemic this actually is. And, you know, as you expand that beyond the borders of this particular country and look across the world, you can see that a very similar situation has arisen in just about every country where this virus has now uh, established a hold. And, you know, uh, the, the logistical issues for different countries varies by, obviously, um, uh, uh, where the populations are, uh, and how frequent testing is happening, uh, whether they have the means to do that again, you know, very similar to here. Right. And so those things, uh, while making it difficult to test also highlight that, uh, testing as a primary, uh, method of attack to understand how this disease is spreading is, is key.
0: Right, I, you provided a perf- perfect segue um, into my next question. And that is that our media has provided us with lots and lots of information on the spread and uh, current COVID-19 situation in the United States. We have some information on Asia and Europe, but don't seem to have a lot of information about other regions and countries in the world. How important is it from your perspective when we talk about a global pandemic to be
1: globally competent? That's, that's another great question. Um, I think it, at this time, it, while it's easy to be insular and look at what's happening within our own borders, And, you know, obviously our focus is going to be for anybody living within the United States, exactly what is happening here, even to a degree what is happening within our own states. You know, we know that different states are suffering to various degrees. Um, I think the same thing can be said globally on an international scale when you look at regions of the world, you know, obviously the Far East, obviously where this originated was believed to originate in China. Um, When you look at populations in countries such as Africa, potentially India right now, there's some pretty, you know, horrific things happening there with the methods that have been implemented to try and tackle uh, the spread of this particular pandemic in that country, you know, and I have obviously uh, very close roots to India being, you know, my folks uh, uh, originating from uh, Northwest India um, and, uh, you know, currently there they have tried to tackle by shutting the country down and limiting the uh, much like here sort of shelter in place policies but uh, it was done with such (laughs) uh, severity um, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people currently migrating across the country trying to get home to their villages. You know, most most of the folks working in India, in the big cities, are people from rural districts who are trying to better their lives. And, you know, the shutdown of the infrastructure in India has sparked a mass exodus of people trying to get back to their villages in the more rural parts of india sure with many, many people families walking hundreds of miles mm-hmm. to get home and unfortunately the inadvertent effect of that has been to produce mass crowds and you know the very opposite of what they were trying trying to see uh, to achieve and so you know the global impact there um, is you know the it's having a very different effect on on different countries and and inadvertent outcomes. In Africa as well, you know, you you have large populations of people that are very close to each other that can't socially distance, you know, things that we believe now can help flatten this curve and really help um, healthcare systems deal with uh, how fast this is spreading. And, you know, all you have to do is look at Italy as well. You know, unfortunately, they you know, they have the highest uh, mortality rate currently due to, uh, due to this pandemic. Um, and they've had to take some very severe uh, uh, measures to try and stop right. within their own population. You know, Europe is in a very unique situation there too. Um, you know, uh, open borders, you know, are part of what make the EU uh, the state that it is. Right. Uh, but in, in light of what has happened, you know, those borders right. have closed. And so that's prevented people potentially getting back home. Oh, sure. I but can now, own... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. And so, I... you know, those are some of the other aspects of this that, you know, you don't really see... Uh, Necessarily here, so right, much. right, um, but it's having a big effect. So I, can, I can
0: only imagine um, what that would look like to have a shelter in place order for um, over 1.2 billion people. Yes, yeah. uh, I mean, it's the sheer size of the population in India, uh, there's only one one population. Uh, larger than that, and that is uh, China. Name,
1: yes,
0: but um, you know, a close second with over 1.2 billion people uh, in India. That must be, like you said, um, logistically for people to to get to where they would shelter in place uh, would also require them to uh, to travel. Uh, either by train or or by foot or uh by car and 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 so just getting getting to places and at the same time avoiding uh crowded locations uh, it seems to be just sort of a mind-boggling aspect to all of this it's impossible
1: i mean it you you there is no way to achieve that i mean the some of the I, the people are calling it an exodus. Some of the exodus out of the cities into uh, the more rural, rural areas are very much akin to uh, when India gained independence and millions of people were moving east and west across the East Pakistani border. Um, and so, you know, looking back at that, um, you know, India has also been affected um, by plague sense and, and things like that. And, even back then, I think this was in the late 1800s, uh, to deal with that, you know, that was at the time of the British Raj. You know, they basically asked; they basically moved the poor out of the city of Bombay as it was known back then. Um, and inadvertently what they did was they pushed the plague into other regions of, of India. And so, you know, you know, that right. things kind of, things unfortunately are happening again. And it's that iron history that we have to have and that understanding that, you know, uh, we have to be somewhat measured and understand the repercussions of some of these uh, things we're implementing. And that's, right. I, I'm assuming that's gonna be the same everywhere. Right. Uh, well, know, and we, go ahead.
0: And as you said, um, there are many parts uh, of this world that are considered developing, uh, mm-hmm. that are considered developing regions or countries. And so not everybody uh, has access to running water the way that uh, that we do. And so this entire idea, which leads me to um, my second question, while we promote through hand washing um, as one of the most effective ways to reduce the risk of infection, which is relatively easy for us to follow, Um, on March 22nd, which was World Water Day, the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, uh, UNICEF, had released information that 3 billion people cannot wash their hands at home. What options do those people have to slow the spread of COVID-19 is a big question that was going through my mind. And I thought I pass it on to you because we are so, um, you know, we're so set on the way we do things. And so promoting hand washing and doing that in the family and, and with friends and colleagues is one thing if you have running water. But if you don't, what other options are there?
1: I, I, yeah, again, great point. I mean, it's very easy for us in the developed world here to enact, again, you know these rules. I mean, and this is, you know this is something that's been known for a while. Washing hands has a huge impact on whether this uh, uh, not just this particular virus, but any other kind of global pandemic can be uh uh passed along and uh infect the population one of the things you know getting the message out to these people you know and you know obviously we're talking large swaths of africa even some parts of india and other uh, developing nations uh, throughout the far east Um, we have to you know, it's up to the local authorities to really get the messages out um, that, you know, very simple steps can uh, have a huge impact on whether uh, this transmission occurs. And it's very, very difficult, unfortunately, in those situations. You know, these people are living in poverty. You know, washing hands might not be a priority <laughs> for them and in, 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 in getting them to understand that these you know these simple measures are important um, really requires uh, you know the state and federal officials in those countries to uh, provide a cohesive message to everyone that doing this and is is important again right. saying that though I have to be honest, you know again, for large portions of this population it, it's it's going to be very, very difficult to do that. I mean, they have other so many other things that they're dealing with on a daily, daily basis that, you know, the priority for this may not be that high. And I think we'll see it all over the world. You know, I mean, uh there are poor in developed nations too, you know, that um these messages, uh while they might get there, the impact on their lives and and the ordeals of their daily lives. Can sometimes override the ability to do some of these things. And uh, I hate to say it, but we may, you know, see, you know, that's usually where pandemics like this hit hardest. Uh, uh, We've seen it in the past. And uh, I believe, unfortunately, it potentially is going to get worse before it starts getting better in, in that respect. Right.
0: Now you you talked a little bit about this um, in my first question. Um, as a scientist with a diverse ethnic and cultural background, how much do you rely on global data? How much do you actually look outside of your own laboratory in your own state within this country? And you look at other places in the world and the data that they accumulated, and I guess one question there that I would have as a non scientist is are they all measured the same way? I mean, is there an international sort of standard um, that applies so that a scientist in the United States could take the data and basically convert it one for one, or is this difficult how How much does a scientist like yourself rely on? on global data?
1: It's a super, super complex issue, you know. The, the, it, we, we, do, we do have to look at uh, what is happening, and especially in a pandemic like this, how, knowing how transmission is occurring, knowing how quickly it is spreading through a population, knowing what, they, what measures they are taking and how they are potentially factoring in into that spread is, a, a, is, I mean, it's hugely complex. Um, but we are starting to get a little bit of insight. And, you know, obviously when, when we look at this data, we have to look at it objectively like any scientists uh, when they're, when they're uh, uh, evaluating what they're reading and what they're seeing. Um, but there are some really interesting um, findings coming out. Uh, based on how different countries are, you know, handling the issue of testing and um, how that's impacting the spread in those countries. I mean, obviously, we've there's been a lot on the news about South Korea and the implementation of testing for uh, the majority of the population, and it's given them a very good handle on um, um, uh, curbing the spread, you know, isolating people that are infected even though they may not be showing any symptomology and i think that's where this this disease is sort of uh sort of unique from you know even things like the flu which we've become very used to in our daily lives you know, we know the flu you know pandemics of the past 1918 wiped out huge populations uh, swaths of the populations across the globe as well um, in this case i think it's very important to realize that um, that knowing you know the the global data that we see from let's say a country like iceland i was reading recently is this week um you know iceland is a small nation an island so it's isolated and they've implemented uh, uh testing of as the entire population whether they're symptomatic or not and some very interesting data from that particular population. And that this may not be uh, indicative of what's happening, you know, in other countries or in larger countries with uh, a greater diversity of the population. But, you know, they're seeing that from the people that they've screened, that you actually see more infection in slightly younger age groups. You know, we know that this uh, is very adversely affecting people, in the later stages of their lives, and then obviously anything, any comorbidity with uh, any respiratory or heart issues, you know, autoimmune disorders such as diabetes, those comorbidities can, I mean, those diseases along with this infection can have some very severe consequences. Um, In a lot of nations, we're only testing people who are exhibiting signs of sickness. And so when you look at that population, it tends to give us the indication that it's primarily affecting older people because they're the ones that are succumbing. or And so we have to be very, very careful when we, especially because we're at this stage across the planet where we're making policy and making uh, decisions based on this data. And so you have to be very, very careful at how you look at that. Um, but so, as a scientist, I'm sure, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, but those folks you know, who are on the front lines of trying to understand, do the modeling that we're using to try and understand how this is spreading and how our measures of intervention are affecting uh, how this disease is spreading and not, not only locally, state, but on a, you know, nationwide, global uh, uh, arena is very, very important. So that, they, that, that data is, is key to understand.
0: Right. right. I figured that that there was a huge component um, of your work uh, outside or looking at outside data uh, to then draw conclusions uh, that apply to the inside of a population. But um, along with that, and you had mentioned that earlier, is this sort of a issue cultural issue, uh, perhaps that has to do with population density, it has to do with cultural practices. And as an intercultural researcher, I have long been fascinated with the concept of low and high contact cultures and countries, also known as proxemics, a concept that originally developed uh, by Edward T. Hall, an American anthropologist, Who coined the term proxemics way back in 1963 were not considered extremely high contact in the United States but what about those regions and countries in the world that are and you were mentioning India earlier as an example because of a population that is over 1.2 billion where people tend to touch each other more and maintain Closer interpersonal distance. How difficult will it be for people to practice social distancing in those countries?
1: It's going to be incredibly difficult. Um, you know, uh, the you, you mentioned it. You know, the, the, this proxemics view of how uh, different cultures uh, the the personal space that they give and. What that means culturally for them um, is, 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 is going to be a big factor. You know, you mentioned we don't have that as much here in the United States and, you know, as, as living here for the past 20 years. You know, I, I, I guess that is somewhat true, but I think you also have to look at it and, I mean, like this is an incredibly diverse population here from representing pretty much Cultures from all over the world. So I think in pockets right, where you you know you see regional true populations going. I mean I think in family groups I think you know I think those cultural things still hold true. And uh, while we have the advantage of being able to disseminate that information and understanding, uh, I think that can uh, I think that's a big factor here. But like you say, in countries like India. Um, Culture. I mean, across Europe too. Though I mean, when you look at southern
0: southern part of Europe, absolutely. Yeah, and the Mediterranean
1: countries. I mean, yeah, physical contact is a, a very big part of everyday life. You know, just in the greetings and and uh, in, in the way the family structure works. Um, obviously, Italy is a big big. You know, it's a big part there. Sure. Um, India, just recently. I mean, you know, you know. The, the, the way the country runs is very tightly uh, bound to the religious
0: sure.
1: uh, makeup of the country you know, and Hinduism, and there's so many activities in everyday life are sort of governed right. uh, by those beliefs. And uh, you know, congregations for prayers and celebrating um, religious holidays, you know, a very, sure. very big holiday, and I think. Um, this is similar across the world. Many nations and many cultures have uh, uh, ways of celebrating the advent of spring. You know and in India it's, a, it's a, a, a holiday called holy or a religious day called holy, which is basically celebrating uh, the arrival of spring and you know it's usually celebrated by mass crowds having a party um and where they get together and they throw colored dye on each other to signify the arrival of you know the blooming of the, the crops and flowers and all those kinds of things and right you know i've been away from there for a while but it's, i'm probably not doing it justice but you know even back in the uk where my folks still live uh, all those activities were um, I wouldn't say bad, but you know, they would tell that you couldn't do that, you know, and so it it, it has a dramatic effect. Um, well then I'm I'm thinking of they, what go ahead. go ahead.
0: I'm thinking of what you said um as far as when we look at uh, southern Europe, the Mediterranean on both sides, uh North Africa and the Middle East as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the practice of communal meals and sitting together and having people uh, come over to one's house. I've heard that very rarely uh, people of the aforementioned uh, regions and uh, countries ever eat alone because there's always somebody, either your immediate family or, um, uh, you know, a wider range of your client or whatever that, that, um, will be with you and will share a meal with you. And then the way it's done, the idea of, you know, sitting together and having one large dish that everybody is is mm-hmm. scooping food out of, I think those are all things that are very difficult to change and to tell people, well, you have to social, uh, to practice social uh, distancing here. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's much more difficult because you have this cultural practice there where in other... Great. Societies, it may be easier.
1: Yeah, and I I, I can speak to that a little bit. You know, growing up in the UK, you know, a first generation, and you know, one of the things our parents tried to do for all the kids my generation is, even though we were growing up in a in a, a different culture, obviously to understand our heritage. So every, you know, my mom's door was never closed. There was always some family member coming over. Very rarely we ever had dinner where it was just me my brother and my dad and my mom. You know, there was always uncles and aunts and cousins coming and going all times of the day kind of thing. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh, incredibly hard. How do, you, how do you change your entire way of life? And, you know, in, again, in less developed worlds where it's such an integral part of everyday life. Right. Uh, It's going to be very, very difficult.
0: Now, going back to um, what we said earlier about the importance of having a global competence, the importance of looking at global data, the World Health Organization urges countries to unite to fight the pandemic together. What are some suggestions you have for international collaboration? What can we learn Uh, From each other
1: Well as uh, from a scientific point obviously understanding you know as Obviously, we're trying to stem the spread and so everything right now is focused on uh, uh, Preventing that spread and, and the actions we can all take and the things that we're doing to make that more possible as time moves on obviously there are people uh, working uh, all over the world to develop vaccines develop ways to te- test more efficiently um, uh, more more people I think I think it behooves all of us um, i mean I think this is something that happens in the scientific community uh, anyway, where you know the dissemination of information um, uh, can be can be rapid you know and uh, done sometimes without borders, there are obviously uh, economic pressures on things like that too. but um, I think beyond beyond that, I mean I think you know, helping our neighbors, helping you know international aid is now is flowing in many directions you know um, Obviously countries like if Italy are receiving help from their neighbors, in in europe um i know while the border between the united states and canada is currently uh closed you know these these two nations continue to to, to work closely together to try and, and tackle uh, many of the issues that are arising from this and i think as time goes on the development of vaccines the distribution of uh protective equipment that can help, um, you know, the frontline individuals who are dealing with this, the, the clinicians and the, the nurses, Right. You know, you know, those, those kinds of things are going to be at this very early stage, very, very important. And I think cooperation globally, I mean, these things, as we know, I mean, these things are, some of these things are, you know, only manufactured in certain countries, you know, obviously a lot of manufacturing in China. So when they shut down, it, it inadvertently affects the rest of the world, you know, right. and it's a supply and demand kind of, uh, world right now. Right. Um, you know, and so I think being able to expand our ability to help, uh, nations who are, who are suffering at, at this time, um, what, by whatever means, you know, it's going to be very, very important. And, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, the the folks uh, uh, in, you know, in charge of disseminating the information and it, it's, I, I you can't envy what these people are having to do uh, yes. to get their, get their stuff out. You know, when you look at a situation like New York, uh, which sort of is like a microcosm of like what you might see in somewhere like India or, where you could, I mean, it's truly an international city. There are so many people moving in and out of New York every day, and they've been hit hardest, and it sort of makes sense. But then, how do we help? You know, how, how do we help that? Those, right. Those, you know, millions of people uh, right there. I think, um, you know, I, th- I think it's going to take a concerted effort from all the nations of the world to try and uh, help this. I mean, that seems little idealistic, but I mean, I think that's the only way we're going to fight this. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, it it may be hard to see right now, but, uh, you know, I've heard this sentiment too, this, as scientists, we're like, you know, there'll be a beginning to this thing, there'll be a middle to this thing, and and, and there will be an end. And while it's hard to see that right now, you know, I think as we work together, um, we can make that come around a a lot sooner
0: right now you said there will be an end to COVID-19 and 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 the sooner the better of course but as a scientist I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you what is the likelihood of COVID-19 becoming a cyclical sort of seasonal disease that will revisit us if COVID-19 is not the worst if we look at it as a precursor for what might come our way in the future, a COVID-20 or a COVID-21. What have scientists learned so far? What can or should we learn for the next outbreak?
1: Oh, that's a very very big question. Um, You know, I'm, again, I'm not an immunologist, by uh, by, it's not my uh, field of expertise, but I would. I mean, I, I I'm not sure in terms of whether it could be. Um, I mean, there is this chance. I mean, there. You know, this in this unique case, it appears that the there was a species jump and a transmission. Now that it's in the human population, you know, by their very nature, you know, the reason we have and, you know, new vaccines for flu every year is because it's in the population, it spreads around the world, um, uh, but the vaccination helps. Um, I don't know if COVID is going to behave in a similar manner now that it's already out. We already know um, scientifically that it's changing and mutating. There are, you know, as we, you know, scientists around the world who are trying to work on, on this pandemic, uh, uh, you know, as geneticists look at its, you know the the genome of this uh, thing you know is something we do with the human population now you know in health and medicine, um, trying scientists try and get a better handle on how this virus is mutating, what kind of rate of mutation'll be you know as they're trying to develop vaccines currently, how often you know, even in this particular case, not even looking to the future, you know, Will a vaccine that they develop uh, provide immunity? You know, uh, consistently is the virus going to change rapidly? The other thing, you know, host immunity—people uh, who've already been infected—do um, they now have a resistance to? I don't, you know, to the to getting reinfected, we're right? Not, uh, other versions of the we just don't know. I mean, there just hasn't—I don't think there's been enough time. To get a handle on those kinds of questions currently, and people may be working on that. I'm not uh, aware at this time, but I mean, these that, that question, you know, is is something I think everybody sort of needs to be thinking about, especially people in charge of tackling pandemics like this. You know, the the healthcare field, and, um, and just and to, I mean, economically, can we take another hit like this? You know, so soon after what's happening right now. You know, just projecting into the future. If it was to become, you know, inevitably, I would hope that we would be better prepared for any future pandemics. You know, you got to, like you said, you got to learn from uh, what has happened. And you know, I think one of the things is we're very, very resilient in that. In that regard, um, there are incredibly smart people out there that are applying. Um, their expertise and knowledge to this to figure that out, and you know, and again speaks to the scientific collaboration across across the planet to try and make sure that this doesn't doesn't happen again. So I, well, I can't give you an answer uh, to that particular question. I I am the eternal optimist, and I think that what we learn from this will potentially prevent something like this becoming. Uh, happening something like this is severe happening again though i can't speak to how common it becomes sure does it become seasonal like the flu
0: right no that's a yeah you're you're bringing up a good point it's difficult to say i mean i've i've read a lot of information um indicating that perhaps if there is a connection to the regular
1: mm-hmm. flu
0: type virus that we normally see a uh, slowing of the curve um, when it gets warmer or hotter outside because the flu flu doesn't like hot weather. The virus doesn't like hot weather and it then subsides only to flare back up when it's colder again in the fall. And so the question is, but then you look at the map and you realize that there are uh, COVID-19 infections in uh, in South America, and yes. and so and in other places that are close to the equator, so uh, there there seems to be a different behavior of of COVID nineteen in regard to its temperature tolerance uh, than uh, than perhaps the regular uh, flu virus. But you're right; it's it's very early in the in this entire scenario to. Uh, to speculate, but I just, I I thought I'd throw this out there because.
1: Yeah, no, I I think it's a, I think it's a really important question. And I'm sure, I mean, talking stateside, I'm sure the CDC is uh, concentrating on that particular part of the question quite heavily too. Right. And it seems to be that, you know,
0: when we look at the last pandemic, the last flu pandemic, um, almost a hundred years ago now, uh, that there there is I mean there there has been a long period of time where nothing serious as far as a true pandemic has happened. We talked earlier, um, or I mentioned a little bit in my summary um, the the time of uh, SARS and uh, MERS and but those were not true pandemics. They were contained um, and. And and luckily, they never really spread around the world the way we now see with uh, with COVID-19. And so, I'm I'm just thinking, is there a, a likelihood that this that this will come back um, in a similar fashion? And and what what could we learn from this? One one thing that uh, I immediately thought of is certainly the reminder that we're perhaps all a little more interconnected than we might have thought. And, you know, because of international travel, uh, because of the way our supply chain works, and we're getting goods from all over the world, once the ports are closed, you realize how many things are actually coming from somewhere else because yes. they're, they're not available anymore. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it, you know, in, in in good times, so to say, one doesn't have a reason... To think about this much because it's all available and so um you go and get it and uh, but in bad times when you can't go and get it and purchase it uh, then you realize that it's all really interconnected and something happening even as far away as um unan china uh, may very well have a global impact even if it's a month down the road
1: yeah and i think that's you know, there's as interconnected as the global economy is right now, you know, that's why, uh, you know, we see such a dramatic effect, you know, obviously on, on the stock market and all of those things. Um, industry is hurting, you know, production is down um, everywhere because people, you know, to, to combat this disease, we have to, we have to take these, these really severe steps uh, right now. Right, um, And so, but it does. I, I think when you, when you look at that, I think one of the interesting things, you know, obviously in this day and age, you know, as we're sitting here talking on um, two different sides of the city right now, uh, you know, there's, there's, the internet makes it so much easier for us to, to communicate and keep in touch. And I think one of the ups, upsides of, of, of this, I think, has been, Exactly, how much people are talking now? I think we've sort of gone through, through this, uh, uh, you know, not isolationism, but um, you know, everyone becomes very much more insular. And mobile devices have made them. I'm going to sound like an old codger here now, but uh, you know, to you know, I think uh, I think we're all very social beings, and uh, some of that was being being lost. Awesome. And I think, in in light of this, I think one of the positives is that we've actually become you know, reaching out to people and uh, even our neighbors, I think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, times like this, uh, while we might not be able to stand, you know, more than six or 10 feet closer it's like how much, you know, uh, we started to discuss with them and talk with them right. um, through these other means. I think right. that's, I think that's an important upswing to to this part. You know, it's not all, I want to say it's not all doom and Demon <laughs> no, no. And I, and I think you're right. I mean,
0: in all of this, there are certainly some, there's a silver lining. Uh, and, and that may be that uh, communication as a whole, uh, even though it's not happening face to face right now. But when I look at what is offered online, uh, educationally, uh, entertainment wise, just this morning, I heard Uh, that Elton John over the weekend has sort of initiated a a concert, uh, an online concert where various uh, artists from around the world immediately signed on and and basically played music out of their living room. And we've seen a lot of this happening in the last two weeks, the sort of the, the outlet the, this This creativity is still there, and the desire for people to interact with others it 's just that the medium has changed in which to deliver it and that's I think an interesting thing to look at because it hasn't really changed people mm-hmm. it has only changed the vehicle that we use, and I hopefully you, that
1: will stay the same yeah no i think I think you make a good point it's also one of those you know i've a bit old school, and I look at it, it's like you don't know what you had until it's gone. I think you take it for granted, right? Uh, that this interaction that you have, and you know, I, I I watch my own kids. They've managed really well for a couple of weeks, but it it starts telling. They they want to be, you know, be with their friends and this that, and the other. And this has provided a real outlet, and you know, uh, allowed them to maintain these really important bonds. I think that are that are required to be a well-adjusted human being, I think. And I think uh, that's just on a very local scale, but I think that's been highlighted globally. Right.
0: Now, that brings me to perhaps uh, our last question, or my last question uh, to you, and that is you have, and I really appreciate your time and expertise and the fact that you were willing to share um, your view from a scientific perspective. But I also know that you are a husband and a father. And in these times, it's difficult to uh, to sort of deal with these things on various levels. It's one way to deal with it in the lab, perhaps. Uh, it's another to deal with it um, in a family setting. Any advice you have or how you have uh, dealt with this as a husband, as a father that we can probably all relate to.
1: <laughs> well, I'm really lucky because I have an awesome wife. I've got to say that. First. <laughs> but uh, Shout out no, to the wife. You know, I, you know, I, it's, <laughs> you know, I think I, for me personally, uh, you know, with my family, we've been very, very lucky because both, you know, my kids are a little older, so... Um, you know they they have an understanding of what's going on and and why what we're doing right now while they may not be happy about it um uh, they understand the importance of doing what we're doing and you know um we're we're really, we're really lucky every day uh, we 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 play games we you know, we try and get outside as much as we can, um, you know, having the dog helps, uh, those kinds of, kinds of fun things. I think also, um, yeah, for me, um, we've been, you know, I, with, with what I'm doing, I continue to work. And so I look forward to to actually getting home and and seeing them still. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I think, you know, we, we just, you know, we can, we can laugh. We, we get, we still get mad at each other. The social space thing still can be, be an issue, but I sure. think keep it, keep it light, uh, keep it entertaining. You know, there's so many ways we can interact. We've been speaking with family yesterday. We did a crossword with, you know, family across the country. Uh, you know, or just just little things like that to to make things fun. You know, there's there's ways uh, around all of these issues at times. And you know, my my nieces and nephews, you know, they you know they've taken it upon themselves to like call my kids just out of the blue. You know, usually we do like a weekly call with all the family around the world. Um, you know, family in Africa, family in India, family I don't talk to them as. As often, but you know, my my family in the UK, um, these these devices make that kind of thing so much easier. I think, I think you, you you have to keep your spirits high. It'd be very easy to to get low with that isolation, and I think you just have to be thankful for. I mean, the fact that you know, I'm very lucky that I have this incredible family uh, to to keep my spirits up. And I think, uh, I think you just. You you, you you fall on your loved ones at that time. Right, right. So I think that's important. Well,
0: Dr. Patel, I thank you for your time today, uh, for being with us on International Voices, the March edition, and uh, for doing the work that you're doing in, in all areas uh, as a scientist. It's much appreciated, and I certainly uh, enjoyed my time talking with you. I can't believe how quickly the time went by and and when you're sitting there you always sort of think oh you know a half an hour podcast uh, what if we run out of uh, material and then um it has never happened when i think yeah. back that, because there's always uh <laughs> enough to to talk about and as in this case what i appreciated was um you really digging in and and giving us an insight into uh, these questions that I had in the, uh, with your answers. And, and that's very much appreciated from my end.
1: Well, thank you, Uno, and thank you for the invite to, to come and chat with you. This was a lot of fun. Of course.
0: All the best to you. You too. Take care. Take, take care. Bye bye.